Welcome to Sport Faith Life with Brian Bolt and Chad Carlson, two guys who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. They are sports scholars, they're coaches, and they're competitive athletes, or at least they were. And together, they've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. So today we're talking about another of the deadly sins. We're talking about envy. And this one gets me really excited. And I think it's because it's uh, it's a central one to, to sport. In fact, there's something that's central about sport. It's also central about envy as a, a vice itself. So uh, Brian and I are going to be discussing this, not the greatest of all deadly sins, but this certainly very prominent one, envy. Envy, uh, not jealousy, not covetousness. Envy is the deadly sin, which may be confused with its cousins at times. And we can talk a little bit about that, Brian. But envy seems to be something that stands alone as the deadly sin within that sort of family. And that family has some attributes that I think we'll be able to discuss that will help us understand this particular vice, especially within the world of sport. Brian, your thoughts on envy as we get started. Yeah, I think envy is low-hanging fruit, if we think about it that way, in terms of a connection to sport. We think of envy uh, being about comparison. In other words, I need someone to envy or something to envy, and so I'm comparing myself to somebody else. And you mentioned that it has these cousins, right? We Envy may be a deadly sin, but covetousness is a top 10, right? That's a, that is Mm -hmm. a a commandment for us not to covet. And so that's not small potatoes. Covetousness is uh, maybe a little different than envy and jealousy is maybe a little different than envy. All of them are depicted by the color green and we think of them together. Jealousy, I think I distinguish these a little bit as maybe protecting something that you, that you have. So you might be jealous of uh, your your wife talking to somebody else, right? Um, or your girlfriend. Um, so it's it's something that you're you're sort of circling the wagons and and saying stay away. I'm jealous of something that's happening here, and, but you're holding on to something. Covetousness. We have uh, good examples of that in in the Bible as well. We have really coveting your neighbor's wife almost perfectly when we think about King David and Bathsheba, him noticing her on the roof and her beauty and just coveting uh, Uriah's wife. And um, in that case, it's it's sort of this inordinate desire for something, something or someone that you can't have that that's not yours. So jealousy might be something protecting you, something you have. Coveting is, is sort of this inordinate desire. And so you wonder, how do I how do I distinguish envy from that? And I think envy also has a target. Somebody that um, holds something. In this case, I, I suppose envy could have been for Uriah. I think Uriah just kind of got in the way in David's circumstance. But somebody who has something that uh, you... 
you want, but also you bring real anger or contempt or resentment against that that person, maybe enough to act on it. And we have really good examples of envy in the Bible. Perhaps the first murder described in the Bible of Cain murdering Abel. It was Abel's uh, sacrifice to God that Cain envied. Cain envied the fact that God found Abel's sacrifice pleasing and didn't find Cain's sacrifice pleasing. There was much more behind that. But clearly it was a comparison between himself and Abel. And we can remember even uh, Joseph, Joseph's brothers. Remember, Joseph was the brother that got all the attention. He got the coat of many colors, which was just a symbol of his father's favor. And people found, his brothers found that to be uh, so off-putting, so they were so envious of this that they plotted to kill him. Ultimately, they didn't kill him. They threw him in a pit and, and lied that he had been been killed. It did come back to bite them later in life. Uh, but those are good examples of of envy moving to the place that you do something, you act on it. And of course, Jesus. Jesus, when he ultimately was um, targeted by the religious leaders of the time, it was a lot of envy. Jesus was getting a lot of attention from the crowds, and the crowds were starting to move toward him and instead of listening to the leaders, the religious leaders of the time, and that prompted them to say, we got to find a way to get rid of this guy. We have to find a way to, to take care of this. So I think um, this idea of having a target is familiar in sport. We think about uh, an opponent, obviously, uh, maybe having something that we want, uh, or at least trying to get something, some scarce good that we're fighting over. And in sport, there's, there is an ultimate scarce good. There's the one thing that everybody wants in sport, and that's winning. And I think that's one thing we can think about. There are others as well, and maybe we can get to those. Chad, what, how would you uh, try to characterize envy in sport? Well, yeah, that's, that's a, a terrific description, I think, Brian. And that's the way I look at it, too. There, there's Envy in sport is so prominent because we're not necessarily after um, whatever we get tangibly from the event or whatever else, right? Uh, if, if anything comes tangible, I'm thinking of like a medal or a trophy or a ribbon or a ring or whatever else. Yeah, those things are nice to have, but it's not really those things that we're after. We're really after the fact that we can have those things. I think there's a subtle difference there, but that's the idea. The target is of our envy is our opponent, if our opponent has won and reap the benefits of that win, you know, we are, are we are envious of them. And, and, you know, we, we prize up sports. We offer all kinds of things, like I, like I mentioned earlier, but the, the reality is I think most of the time, what we really want is to be the one who is able to have those things rather than to actually have those things. And so there's envy there in the form of a target. We set sports up naturally to create this, uh, these, these opposing conflicts. And, you know, Aristotle has this really interesting passage where he talks about like, um, why we would do things, you know, not non-seriously talks about politics. He talks about why we would sort of oppose each other or create opposition if there's not a need to do so. Right. He's, he's kind of offering this, this justification for why we argue and what we should argue about and what we shouldn't. 
And it's funny because that's exactly what we do in games and in sport is we set up oppositions, like we, we create enemies out of what would otherwise be friends or acquaintances. And so when we do that, we naturally identify a person or a group of people as targets for us. And if they win and we lose, that means they have done what we wish we would have been able to do. And that leads to this envy here. So I think this sort of target mentality is is natural within the world of sport. Yeah, and I like the way you said that it actually leads to envy because I don't think sport in and of itself is an act of envy. Correct. Sport is open, agreed upon conflict. I mean, it's two sides deciding that they will play within a certain parameter, abide by certain rules, and commit to each other to try to win. So the idea that sport is envy itself, I think is misleading. I think without a doubt, what happens in sport is we get this opportunity to have the emotional response to this comparison. And when we come out on the wrong side of that response, there's the possibility or the openness of envy, and then the temptation to attack the target, to get to the target in some way. And we're sometimes even confused as to who we're really angry with. So we talk, we've talked before about this idea that we desire what's closest to us. We compare mostly what's closest to us. So like, I'm not really envious of Tiger Woods as a golfer. He's just so much better than me. It's not even close. It's not a matter of, oh, I'm envious that he can do this or do that. Um, instead, I would find someone with a very similar handicap, maybe somebody in my same age range, maybe somebody that doesn't practice all that much and they're still pretty good. So we start asking questions like, that doesn't seem fair. And if it doesn't seem fair, we think it's maybe a matter of justice that I should have more success than this person. And we talk ourselves into this idea that if, if it's not fair, it's okay for me to take it or take it in some way. And so we walk down this road very quickly. We see this in sibling rivalries, trying to get attention from your parents. We see this in uh, teammates. So what often happens is a teammate, say on your basketball team, uh, you've got two starting point, you've got two point guards and only one can start, right? And one of them shows up early for practice, does extra ball handling drills, works on his shot. But the other one comes in and the coach seems to favor, the coach seems to start. Maybe that person is actually more effective, actually better. Maybe that person uh, leads the team better. Maybe that person uh, can shoot better. Even after all that practice, maybe they can jump higher, run faster. And so we start wondering, are, they, are we really angry with that person? Or are we angry with a coach for choosing that person? Or are we angry with God for making them more talented than us? Envy can really rip at us through this, uh, I think, emotion of resentment. Yeah, and I have to say, envy is a it's a it's a distracting vice too, because like like you said, the object of our envy is often you know sometimes is is appropriate, but so often it's not, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's because there are times when 
we, we, we know the target, we know what the target has and we want what the target has, but we really want to be who that target is. So that, that's a big thing too, right? So we're talking about, we're talking about envy. There, there's something about like wanting to have what somebody has. So wanting to have the championship, wanting to have the victory, wanting to have the records, wanting to have those skills or that swing or whatever else it is. But ultimately that's just one step down a larger slope, which is actually wanting to be that person. And so often in sport, I think we get caught up in that type of uh, what, what uh, scholar Rene Girard calls mimetic rivalry, that we see somebody that's just a step better than us, a step quicker, uh, can jump a little higher, can hit it a little farther. And, and we see that person as our rival because they are, like you said, Brian, attainable to us. They're in our world, our sphere. And it's not just that we want to have the swing like that person, or we want to be able to have the athleticism of that person. We actually want to be that person. We desire, we start to desire what they desire. And, and so all of this clashes, especially in the scarcity of sports. So there, there's, there's those kind of things going on. But I think what you're getting at is that so often within envy, who we are envious of or, or where our, our emotions are directed is oftentimes not where the problem lies. Is that what you're getting at a little bit here? That, that when we are envious, if I'm envious of the person that's starting over me, my envy might be displaced. Yeah, and I think it, it may be displaced outwardly, but it certainly is displaced inwardly. So when you start thinking about uh, envy, often it reveals in a sense of inadequacy, mm. a sense of discontent and Obviously, we, we hear all the time about how uh, we are urged to be content in whatever circumstance. And contentedness it means um, that you're willing to recognize who you are and what you have and live into that space in a way that, that doesn't compare or doesn't um, set up somebody else to be the target of your anger or resentment, or even, you know, lashing out, it, there could be something that, that comes from it. I think when we, um, look at sport in particular, the opportunity is just naturally there for us to compare, right? So we, we've talked about the comparison. They, people will say is the enemy of joy. And we often think about that, right? And you mentioned Rene Girard. There was another researcher, Jeremy Sells, who, who actually did a lot of research on envy and business, and then he turned his attention to look at envy and sport. And it was pretty fascinating what he found. What he did is he set up a bunch of experiments where he would have someone play a game and then get compensated for how well they did in the game. But then after a person would do that, he would ask them, how, would, how do you feel about yourself? And so that goes to that sort of self-image. And they would say, hey, I feel great. I, I made... And this was, this was in Europe, so they made euros for the, the quality of their play. And it's, you know, it made 10 euros for that uh, performance. And then uh, this researcher would tell them, well, the person in the next room is also playing the game, and they made 15. How do you feel about what you did now? And immediately, when asked a second time, they would feel much worse about the way they played. They felt the same way when they, they felt a certain way when it was just them. But as soon as the comparison was introduced and they were on the losing end of that comparison, automatically uh, their responses to themselves changed. 
And we can imagine that in sport. Sport has a winner and a loser all the time. There are winners and losers within contests, and there's winners and losers at the end of contests. And so there's certainly people that are finding themselves on the losing end very often in sport, particularly as sport carries forth into playoff situations, one by one by one, teams and individuals fall off, and only one person is left standing in the end. There's a lot of comparison, and a lot of people are on the losing end of that comparison. What this researcher did then, which was fascinating, is he asked them, you know, what we can do is we can reduce the amount that that person gets. So if they were getting 15 euros, we're going to drop that down to 10. But you're going to have to drop your 10 down to five. Would you want to do that? And when you look at it just sort of objectively, you'd say, no, I, I, I get 10 euro here. I'm just going to go home with my 10 euro. What he found was that athletes, when he compared to non-athletes, athletes would take that bargain more often, significantly more often. So athletes were more interested in getting the other than getting a good benefit for themselves. And that I think reveals that athletes are just in this game of, I have to, in order for me to feel good about something, I will not only have to be successful myself, I have to beat the other. And that is sort of what's built into sport. And uh, I think one of the, one of the takeaways from this is that if you're an athlete, it's not an act of envy, but you are more susceptible to envy simply by the amount of comparisons that you're doing naturally in your sport. It's, it's hard to say whether it's easy to say that uh, be, an athlete who plays sports for a long time is certainly socialized or at least acculturated in some way into falling prey to the comparison traps. But I guess it's hard to say whether or not sport actually, you know, sort of breeds uh, a comparative mindset, or if people that are more prone to or more motivated by comparative mindsets are mm. those that that step into sport more regularly and become better at sports. It's hard to say exactly which of those is 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 first, which of those is causal. But I think you know, nevertheless, it's it's there for sure, and I think it speaks to it speaks to something that comes along with a comparison. So, in the sport and Christianity course that I teach, I, I we talk about moral virtues and. I usually will make um, the admission, the confession, that uh, there are some teams and players that I hate in sports. I say hmm. I say hate just to be a little bit provocative. I don't know if I actually hate them, but I say, you know what? Like, I'm a Penn State football fan, and the next, my next favorite team is whoever's playing University of Michigan, because I hate the University of Michigan football. Hmm. And then I'll say um, I'll show up a couple of, of pictures of um, players from the from my rival colleges. Uh, men's basketball team. I wouldn't imagine who that could be. Who, <laughs> who happens to be Brian's school. Um, and just say, you know what? Uh, I have a strong dislike for uh, for these teams as well. And, and I show pictures of who I believe are sort of public enemies, number one, at different points in time. And and what we get to in this conversation is, is really, for me, an admission that um, I hate Michigan football because they are seemingly always just a little bit better than Penn State every year. And I, I hate Calvin basketball so much because I have so many memories as a kid. And, and when I played too, and when, um, where, where they were just a little bit better than us. So there were players on their team, even when we beat them, that were just a little bit better than me, that were, and maybe maybe more than that, maybe it's my own bias, but they were better than me. And, and so it wasn't that, I necessarily hate them as people. It's that I hated myself 
in the midst of that comparison. Hmm. And that seems to be what's at play here with Celsus research is that you feel one way when you're sort of alone in, in a room and you receive money as compensation for what you've done. So you've achieved something, but then as soon as you find out what someone else has done and they did better than you and received more for that, no longer are you, are you satisfied with your own achievement? Instead, you are, you're disgusted that you weren't as good as somebody else that did the same thing. And so there's a disgust with ourselves, right? That's kind of, that's kind of what it is. And, and, and that's what I have found over time thinking about these things deeply is that that's exactly what, what drives my hatred and sport of other teams. The public enemy I have is the person that I just can't get to their level. I can't be that good. I'm, I'm not that good or my teams are not that good. And it drives me nuts. I hate them, but that hatred is displaced in some ways, right? Because it, it should be directed inward. Uh, and, and focus on myself, like you said earlier. Yeah, it's fascinating when we think about if we start peeling back our motivations behind these these emotions, right? These things that uh, affect us in ways that we use really strong language, like hate. The most famous, I think, uh, example of envy in sport was many, many years ago when two Olympic figure skaters um, – in, who are rivals in the United States getting ready for the 1994 Olympics. One of them um, who actually achieved more on the ice uh, ultimately got to the place that, and, and this has never really been proven, but Tanya Harding supposedly hired someone to uh, take a lead pipe and take it to the kneecap of Nancy Kerrigan, who was her, her within team rival. I mean, what a great, uh, you know, drama for us to follow. We had a, the world had a great time kind of um, watching that unfold. Obviously, a number of things were written about it. Movies created about that moment in sport. And most most sport uh, rivalries and moments of envy don't lead to such things. But it it sort of encapsulates what you're talking about there, where even a successful, very successful Tanya Harding, who had done more uh, acrobatic, um, landed more acrobatic jumps than Nancy Kerrigan. Nancy Kerrigan was getting all the attention. She was getting all the accolades. She was the uh, the glamorous one, the sophisticated one. And Tanya Harding was, you know, uh, low class, poor, uh, a poorer class. And in in that perception, even in the, um, if you just looked at the statistics, Tanya Harding would have been equal to, or maybe even better than, but it also comes down to perception. And you're talking about, as you talk about your, uh, sometimes even winning, but also feeling a certain contempt or for a certain mm-hmm. desire, that, uh, to, you know, dismiss these people because they they end up being uh, just out of your reach or your perception is that they're just out of your reach. Oddly enough, I bet if you ask them, they wouldn't see it that way. They wouldn't see that they were superior or better. Uh, And so often the sort of the target of envy may not even be aware of your resentment, which is quite something, right? Uh, The fact that they are doing, you know, playing a movie in your mind. Over and over again, you're obsessed on this thing, and they may not even be aware. Now, they're going to have their own people they envy and um, 
their own problems. But it is interesting that one person can get to this level of obsession. And that's that's what we're really talking about here. The, the reaction to compare seems fairly normal. The idea that it goes on and it becomes an obsession almost to the point of, of rage or taking some sort of vengeance or action, that is, uh, that's a whole other level. So we're talking about envy as... Um you know, emotions gone wrong, comparison gone wrong. And yet we probably have to bring up the counter argument here, which is think about in the world of sport, so many rivalries that led to, you know, that were so inspirational, that were motivational to the rivals, to both sets of rivals. I'm thinking of, you know, Federer and Nadal. I'm thinking of uh, Magic and Larry Bird. I'm thinking of uh, Tiger and Phil and, and these, these great athletes that sort of use this comparison to drive them and, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's the difference between, you know, the, the Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan envy that, that led to violence. And then these other rivalries where there seem, they seem to be based on mutual respect. And it seems to me that there, there was no sort of dehumanizing of the other involved, right? Of course, there's, there's um, you know, the lack of impulsiveness that would have led to the harm that Tanya Harding's hitmen, you know, did to Nancy Kerrigan. But there's, there's something about having a, com- a comparator that can really drive us in sport. And that's what makes rivalry so fun. You know, you talk about you can, you can throw out the records for, before a rivalry game, you know, or throw out the predictions because who knows what will happen. Both teams are going to be, you know, super, super motivated to win because it's a rivalry. So there's, there's something good that can come out of comparison. But it seems to me like if we're looking at Federer and Nadal, it seems to me that it, they were, they, their games were so different. And so it was almost like a chess battle here, like, okay, how can I use my talents to beat that person as opposed to, I need to be Roger Federer. You know, Nadal's not saying that I, I need to be Roger Federer. They were, they were, I guess they were different enough, but they were also mature enough to be able to s- stay in their lane and know what they were good at and use that to try to defeat the other person. And it led to some epic, epic matches. So there's something that's positive there about the comparison. And it's almost as if, I don't know if maturity is the right word, but it's almost as if they were mature enough to not sort of synthesize their own desires um, to 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 want to be that other person, right? And to hate them because of that. And part of it was it was a good rivalry. You know, we, we have that between our, our schools as well. We have a good rivalry. We're in a lot of sports. It's pretty darn equal, you know, who's mm-hmm. winning here and there. And there are times one team wins more than another, but it ebbs and flows. And so over time, you have this mutual respect and while there's comparison that might drive us, boy, we, we've had our time. We get our moments and they get their moments and we want more and they want more. But there's something about, you know, over time, what, what is, what has presented itself that, that might lead itself to some mature thinking. I don't know. Maybe I'm off base there, Brian. No, I think you're really, you're onto it. I mean, the fact that envy can result from sport or comparison doesn't mean that it has to, or it doesn't mean that like, it has to grip us or take hold of us. And on the flip side, there's something really positive about this pursuit of excellence. And to pursue excellence, we need something to compare with. We need to know what excellence is. We need to be able to figure out what the bar is. And that requires somebody pushing us, somebody taking us to a level that we had not been to before. And in that, you talked about some of the things that might be antidotes to envy. And one of those is just this idea of respect. This understanding that even though I'm not them, and even though they're going to win sometimes, 
I can appreciate what they bring to the table because of what it does for me, what it does uh, to bring out excellence in what I'm doing. And so it is in some ways a gratitude uh, for the opportunity to present against uh, a worthy foe and for the, the quality of that foe to push you to even higher levels. And that is a, that's a takeaway. Typically, that doesn't happen in the midst of it. If we could all get to a place that we could do that in the midst of it. But upon reflection, we often get to the place that we say, wow, that person, that team, that program, that made us better. That made us rise to the moment. That made us rise to the occasion. If you're going to take that risk to try to play at that level, you're also going to take the risk of being sadly disappointed on given days and having to deal with some of that sadness, resentment, uh, loss that comes with the high emotion of sport. I think another thing, too, that I, I think we want to try to put on or wear is this idea of contentedness. But that sounds bad in sport, yeah. right? It sounds, mm -hmm. I mean, if you start going with contentedness, you're like, okay, uh, I'm just going to be worse. And so I'm not sure that's the word that we need to use in sport. I'm trying to think of how we might frame that differently. Ultimately, there's an aspiration in sport to achieve, to get better, to pursue excellence, and even to overcome, right? To overcome an opponent on a given day. Um, I guess it's contentedness in plenty, in winning, and in want, right? In in losing, and in, in both of those ways that requires a maturity, the maturity that you talked about. Uh, to be able to really kind of work against this, uh, I've seen some coaches and even athletes, and I've seen from some of my athletes, some attempts to sort of peel back some of the dangers of resentment and envy. And one of the things that's sort of new to me, uh, maybe I'm old and my era is different, but my athletes are, are friends with athletes from rival schools, uh, which is interesting. They see them in other places. Maybe the world's smaller. They see them in other tournaments. And they'll say, you know, yeah, he, he plays for so-and-so, right? Uh, but he's not such a bad guy. In other words, they, they've learned to get to know them as friends. They've learned to... Uh, appreciate what they can do. Um, they're really, in many ways, um, in awe sometimes of the quality of a person's play. Wow, that that's really good. And I think that's a healthy place to be, to, to sort of really uh, admire in some ways the quality of your opponent, the output of your opponent. And that gets us to a place of, of kind of overcoming envy. And it is an act of will. I think I think it's an act of will, and there are some practices that can put that in place. What about you? Would you say there are some antidotes to this uh, slippery slope of envy? Well, I, I definitely see what what you're saying with all that. And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's really helpful to think in those terms. I think so often one of the the difficulties is that because sport is, you know, is like winning the the goods, the not the goods, the goals of sport are oftentimes in in scarce. There's scarce resource, right? There's only one winner. You know, uh, well, we could talk about everybody getting participation trophies, but if you're really talking about hmm. who wins, it's it's a scarce resource, and so I think that breeds a scarcity mindset sometimes. So, with what you're saying of you know players recognizing 
uh, teammates that they've had in, in, in club situations or previous seasons that they're now playing against as opponents and, and being able to say, that's not such a bad person. I think what they're also, what that leads us to is, is recognizing that um, excellence is not a scarce resource in the world of sport. And so, so often when I resent somebody because they're good or I resent somebody's kid because they're good at sports, I forget that there can be an unlimited amount of excellence in the world of sports. So just because somebody else is really good at something at, at, at uh, one particular sport or one particular skill in a sport doesn't mean that I can't also be excellent at something, whether it's the same skill, same sport or not, or, or someone in my family or my team, you know? And so it's, it's almost like, um, you know, game recognizes game, right. As the, as the euphemism. So, uh, you know, you can respect someone else, um, and also respect yourself at the same time. And I think that's, that's some, some of the difficulty, right? So, so Calvin professor, Rebecca Conan de Young says, says this, I love this quote about envy. She says this, we are, we are taught in the Christian, in the Christian life to love our neighbors as ourselves and the envious person can do neither. That's mm. as much about our being able to love ourselves envious as, as sort of not hating another person. Yeah. I think the um, awareness of that kind of hits us in, in many different ways at different times in life. Um, the famous uh, Bible passage on love names it out loud and it just says, love does not envy. And it's sort of a strange thing. You you think it wouldn't be on the list, but somehow it's in there. This idea that to truly love someone means that you you can't bring envy into the mix. Uh, I'll, I'll do a, uh, I'll bring my own confession to this. So my son is playing quarterback for a, for a college football program right now. And he's been sitting as the backup for a number of years and the, the kid playing ahead of him, um, you know, I always thought he was maybe better, but I, I had a, a certain envy that he had some skills that my son didn't. Uh, and then, you know, you sit by their, his parents in the stands and you, you know, you just kind of don't want to really talk to them. Um, because, you know, I wish my son were playing, right? So I'm, I'm being really uh, open here on this one. You know, and so this year, their son had graduated, right? And they show up because he's an assistant coach on the team. And my son says, wow, he's been really helpful. And before the game, they came up to us and said, you know, we're really pulling for your son and we're praying for him. And I just kind of swallowed and said, oh, I'm such a bad, bad person. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, wonderful people that had no idea that I was kind of resenting them for mm-hmm. all that time. Um, you know, and it just hits you in the face that uh, we get pretty petty pretty quickly in sport. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, love in its many forms uh, conquers, uh, com- conquers envy um, and gets us to this place that we can love not only our opponent, but love ourselves, as you mentioned. Thanks for tuning in to the Sport Faith Life Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of sport and faith. Read the corresponding blog post and learn more about us at sportfaithlife.com. Listen to more of our podcasts on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media to stay up to date with everything sport, faith, and life.